name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Yeah. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the, the Son, Holy and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus, welcome to the Meaning of Catholic. I'm joined today again by Dr. Edmund Mazza. Dr. Mazza, happy to have you on the show once again. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, today we're talking about the Mohammedans have stolen Hagia Sophia once more. The And a couple weeks ago, uh, Hagia Sophia, the great church of Justinian, was converted back to a mosque where the spirit of Antichrist was worshipped, and we'll get into that and what that means. And we're going to talk about the history of this great church, the history that our forefathers have bled and died for, and what this means, and trying to understand the resurgence also of Mohammedanism in the last few decades. So uh, here to tell us about that is Dr. Maza. So we're going to start talking about Byzantine civilization, aka Eastern Roman or Greek Roman uh, civilization, because the Roman Empire fell in the West in 410, but in the East, it's a different story. So tell us about, Dr. Maza, Byzantine civilization. What does it mean for the West? Why is it important? Uh, it's, it's, it's so important, and so few Catholics understand this part of history. Uh, most Catholics will know that in the year 313, uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, legalized Christianity, and then began to shower benefits on the Christians after 300 years of persecutions. What uh, people might not know is that he moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople. Well, actually, it wasn't called Constantinople back then. It was called Byzantium. Uh, it's where Europe meets uh, Asia, uh, and uh, it's... Uh, it was founded in the year 330, and it was called New Rome, but uh, because it was built by Constantine, and I think later on we're going to see a beautiful icon uh, showing the emperor you know, giving the city to Mary, our mother, uh, because it was built by Constantine, or refurbished, uh, it is called Constantinople, which in Greek means city of Constantine. And as you point out, 100 years later, uh, Rome itself was sacked by the Visigoths, and then later uh, the Huns came and the, the Ostrogoths. And really, during the 400s, the Western Roman Empire fell. So Italy, France, North Africa, Spain. But thanks to Constantine, the richest and most culturally important part of the empire, Greece, what is today Turkey, but we call it Asia Minor in Roman times, uh, Syria, Israel, Egypt, those areas were still intact. And they called themselves, the emperors who lived in Constantinople, called themselves Romans, Roman emperors. And the civilization that they promoted was Catholic civilization. There's a decree from the year 380 by the emperor Gratian in the West and Theodosius in the East which says that we want all the subjects of the empire to embrace that religion which was brought to Rome by Peter, the Catholic and Orthodox religion, which is professed by Pope Damasus and by Peter, the Bishop of Alexandria. That was in 380. So 
the Eastern Roman Empire was a Catholic empire uh, for centuries. And the city of Constantinople, not only was it the, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, but it was the largest Catholic city on the planet for nearly a thousand years. Uh, so that's <laughs> that bears repeating. <laughs> People don't know about this history. Uh, later on, when in the seventh century, when the Arab armies began to assault the the West and the East and spread Islam, it was it was only thanks to Constantinople that Europe was not completely overrun uh, uh, by the Muslims. And of course, in you may have covered this on a previous episode, but in the year 732, uh, the Frankish general Charles Martel was able to stop the Muslim advance and uh, beat them back into Spain. They had gone into France by that point. So uh, to, to concentrate more specifically on Byzantine history, we have to understand that in the history of the church, all of the major ecumenical councils for the first thousand years were held in the East, in the Greek-speaking East. Um, after the fall of the Western Empire, um, there began to be a language divide uh, between East and West. And Greek became the exclusive language of the East and Latin became the exclusive language of the West. But the Council of Nicaea, which was held in 325, was just a few miles from Constantinople, there was the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, there was the Council of Constantinople, the Second Council of Constantinople. So all of these early uh, ecumenical councils of the Catholic Church were not held in the lands of Western Europe. They were held in, in the Byzantine East. Um, and so there's... Yeah, I could, I could go on further here, but that's in general an introduction to the importance both militarily and culturally and religiously of the Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah. So, yeah, we've, we've talked a little bit about this when we discussed the history of the Mohammedan invasions as well as the Greek schism. And it's interesting to note that originally the first Roman Empire had one emperor and then it, it, later on, it had two emperors, one in Old Rome and one in the East. And then uh, with Constantine, you continue to have two emperors. And then the Western emperor dies or, you know, dies away like you're talking about Western emperor uh, mm -hmm. empire falls. And then later, the Western empire is resurrected somewhat in sort of a different form mm -hmm. with Charlemagne, who is crowned emperor of the Romans in the West. And that's uh, so you have the Latin Roman emperor empire in the West. The right. Greek Roman Empire in the East, and a political tension between them, which in the in the days of Nicaea, there there was still Greek and Latin used as uh, political discourse, and and every, people knew Latin and Greek. But at that point, you either knew Latin or you either knew Greek. Um, so exactly what what uh, now and what's interesting, I think too, is that the, the Greek civilization, the Greek cultural sharing that happens at different points in the Western history mm -hmm. becomes very fundamental to various movements, uh, the most famous of which is the Renaissance, really. Um, but uh, what can you say on that point? There's, there's a great deal of uh, sharing that happens from time to time, um, but also tension. Um, yes. So what's the importance of Byzantine culture mm -hmm. on that score? 
Sure. Well, a few points come to mind. Um, for example, Pope Benedict XVI in his Regensburg address pointed to the fact that it's not a, an accident that the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, he pointed to the fact that as St. Justin the Martyr wrote um, in the second century, uh, God spoke to the Jews by revelation but in a sense, he spoke to the Greek philosophers through reason, logos. Uh, and so one of the important historical contributions of the, the Eastern Roman Empire or the Greek-speaking Byzantine Empire is that they continued this tradition of rational and philosophical inquiry. And they kept all these ancient books alive that were lost in large part in the West during the ages of uh, the Dark Ages, during the barbarian invasions. Um, and so, as you point out, when we get to the a thousand years later, to the 1400s, um, it is Greek immigrants or refugees from Constantinople who will help to spark the Florentine and Italian Renaissance. Uh, and also there's going to be a council, you may have spoken about this in one of your previous programs, the Council of Ferrara, Florence, in 1435, if I'm not mistaken, where the Eastern Church and the Western Church actually got back together again, doctrinally. Uh, now, for various reasons that didn't take, but um, okay, going back to the earlier centuries, one of the important things about Byzantine civilization, besides the fact that it was a bulwark against invaders taking over Western Europe, uh, is this cultural legacy. And I'll just cut to the chase and jump to a major figure in Byzantine history and therefore also in Western history, and that is the Emperor Justinian. Uh, Justinian uh, came to the throne, I believe, in, in 527. So he would have been a contemporary of uh, St. Benedict of Nursia. And um, at that time, uh, Justinian is famous for three things. And one of those things is, is Roman law. He, uh, in Constantinople, got his scholars together and they codified centuries of Roman laws, which ever since the 300s had been influenced by Catholic thought. For example, um, there's a famous uh, speech that Cardinal Ottaviani gave back in the 1930s in Rome, where he talks about how it's, it's thanks to Christ and thanks to the Catholic Church that um, the Roman Empire became civilized, truly civilized. For example, um, in Roman law, a Roman father had the power of life and death over his family. He could sell his children into slavery. He could decide to abandon a baby girl if it, or if, even a baby boy. Uh, but thanks to the influence of the church, all of these things begin to uh, be illegal. For example, divorce under the Justinian Code is illegal. Uh, so there's a, 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 a profound influence for the good, which is enshrined in law. And so Justinian has this code, the Codex Justinianus, and there's a, a famous part of it called the Digests. And anyway, later on, these works will make their way to Europe, to Western Europe, so that uh, you get in the 1100s or the late maybe even as early as the early 11th century or the late 11th century, the school of the University of Bologna in, in, in Italy, 
where or and, and in Sicily, the university uh, in Sicily, where scholars begin to study these laws of Justinian, and that helps to give rise to canon law in the in the Catholic Church, and and also it gives rise to the laws of eventually uh, different kingdoms of, of Europe, Western Europe. Um, another thing that Justinian is famous for is trying to reconquer the Western Roman Empire from the barbarians. And ironically, he was largely successful in doing that. His general Belisarius reconquered North Africa from the Vandals, and as well as parts of Spain. And it took 20 years, but Belisarius recaptured mainland Italy from the Ostrogoths. Um, now, unfortunately, this set back the economy of Italy because the, the, the countryside was devastated and it took centuries for it to recuperate. And then the Longbards or the long, long beards <laughs> invaded from the north after Justinian was dead and reconquered Italy. So really the empire, the Western empire was never permanently reacquired by Constantinople. Uh, but the third thing that Justinian is most famous for is the reconstruction of the great cathedral of Constantinople, which is called Hagia Sophia. Now you have to imagine this without the minarets, <laughs> just the church with the dome. And it was originally built in the 300s, around the year 380, by the emperor Constantius, or one of, one of those early emperors. And then it was rebuilt by Justinian, because uh, in the year 532, there was riots in the city. And the many buildings were set on fire, and the dome of Hagia Sophia collapsed. Now, this is the narthex, or the uh, entrance when you first go into Hagia Sophia. And then once you get past the vestibule, you get into the church proper. And when Justinian completed it, it was completed in only five years. There were two architects uh, who completed Hagia Sophia, Isidorus of Miletus, and Antimius of Trales, and uh, they—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's an architectural wonder. First of all, you've got this dome that seems to float on the air, because as you can see from the outside, it's got all those windows surrounding the uh, the dome at the top, and so so much light actually gets inside the cathedral. It looks like that dome is just floating there. Now, of course. Rather than these Islamic symbols, what you would have seen back at the time of Justinian was probably Jesus Pantocrator. Yeah, it's perhaps, gonna, right. I think it's going to switch to that in just a second. There it is. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, so that's the original design, as you can see. And um, so one of the main aspects of the church is the dome, which was really an architectural marvel. Another aspect of the church that makes it irreplaceable is that it was the largest Christian space uh, church in, in all of Christendom for over a thousand years. Um, now, what you'll see here is an angel. Uh, there are many beautiful icons, uh, mosaics, made up of thousands of individual tesserae. Uh, and, and when you put them all together, it, it obviously they're made from uh, uh, precious metals and from glass. And so the light shines on it, and you really feel like you're in heaven. Here's a beautiful image. You've got on the right-hand side of Mary, you've got the Emperor Justinian presenting Hagia Sophia to Christ and the Virgin. 
And then on the left-hand side, you've got Emperor Constantine presenting the city of Constantinople to Christ and the Virgin. What you have to understand about Hagia Sophia in Greek, it means the holy wisdom of God, which is a reference to the Logos, which is the word of God, which is Jesus Christ, whom you see at the center of the image there. And the, so the, the Byzantines were terribly devoted to Christ. They named their cathedral after him. And they were also terribly devoted to the Virgin Mary. Uh, in fact, they claimed to have a cloak of Mary that she was wearing when she gave birth to the Christ child. And here's an interesting story in terms of uh, the history of Constantinople and the history of Western civilization, a story which is yet to be, uh, the final chapter is yet to be written. And that is that the it's thanks to the Byzantines, uh, the Greek speaking uh, people of Constantinople, that the Russian people and the Ukrainian people came to the Christian faith. Um, about, let's say, if, if Hagia Sophia was completed in 537, if we could fast forward about uh, 350 years later to about the year 860, <clears throat> invaders came from across the, the Black Sea uh, and attacked Constantinople. And they were known as the Rus, um, the Kievan Rus. Now, this was a bunch of Slavic people mixed together with Viking people. And uh, that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, high caliber temperament there. And uh, they were pagans and they wanted to conquer Constantinople. This was in June of uh, 860. And what the citizens did, what the patriarch of Constantinople did was he dipped Mary's cloak, this wonderful relic into the Bosporus, into the sea. And as a result, a, a storm came up and destroyed the pagan fleet. And so, in a sense, it was Mary who preserved Christian civilization against the, uh, the Russian barbarians. Fast forward another 150 years or so to the year 988, the king of the Russians, uh, the Rus, his name was Vladimir, Prince Vladimir. Well, he wanted a, a new religion for his people. And the story goes is that he shopped around <laughs> for a religion. And he sent ambassadors to the major representatives, you know, to Islam and etc. And he sent representatives to Constantinople. And the emperor of Constantinople showed these guys into the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia. And the impression that it made on them was tremendous. Um, they went back and reported to Prince Vladimir. They said, if God lives anywhere, this is where he lives. Because the, the church itself, as you can see from this icon and from the earlier images, it was full of gold. It was full of marble. It really was a house fitting for God. In fact, the Emperor Justinian, when he rebuilt it, was supposed to have said, Solomon, I have outdone thee. So it's thanks to Hagia Sophia that the, the Russian people came to embrace Catholicism. Because again, in the year 988, it was only one church, the one Catholic Apostolic Orthodox Church. Later, emperors also adorned the church. As you can see, this is another emperor and another empress, uh, again, featured with our Lord. And again, you can see everything is in Greek. 
because that was the official language uh, of the empire. Let's see what else we got here. Oh, then this is a great image. Now, uh, if I fast forward to 1453, and we'll talk more about this later, the Muslim Turks conquered Constantinople and they turned Hagia Sophia into a mosque. So all these beautiful Christian images, Catholic images were covered over, plastered over. Thankfully, uh, in the 20th century, when it was turned into a museum, these wonderful mosaics were once again visible for the public to see. And this is an image of Christ, which may be the most beautiful image of Christ ever produced by human hands. Um, it was uh, produced uh, in the later centuries of Constantinople. Um, I could briefly explain how uh, in, the yeah, 11th, in the 11th century, uh, in 10, I want to say 1096, the Christian crusaders who had been summoned to crusade by Pope Urban went to Constantinople. This is another little known fact. The Crusades, uh, in a sense, were started on because of a Byzantine emperor. His name was Alexios Komnenos, and he was the ruler in Constantinople at the end of the 11th century. He wrote a letter to the Pope asking for soldiers so that he could help reclaim those, those Catholic or, or you know, Christian territories that have been conquered by the Muslims in the Holy Land, in Syria, and in parts of Turkey. And the response was the First Crusade, uh, in a sense. Um, the Crusaders were from England and France and Italy. They had to go first to Constantinople before they went to Jerusalem. And they had to make an agreement. They had to, they had to swear an oath of allegiance to Emperor Alexius. And they went, and that was the most successful crusade, the first crusade. They took Jerusalem in 1099. Now then, um, in, uh, in, a, in a later crusade, the fourth crusade, which happened in the year 1204, the crusade was sort of diverted from attacking the Muslims to attacking Constantinople. And this has partly to do with the bad blood between the Venetians and the Byzantines who were competitors in the Mediterranean. And a long story short, between 1204 and 1261, Constantinople was actually in the hands of Frankish rulers, Fran French for all purposes here. And they made Constantinople a Catholic city because at that point it had been, in 1054, of course, was the Great Schism. And this is 200 years later. And so for a time, you had Latin-speaking, uh, or la at least Latin-writing um, Frenchmen running Constantinople. But in 1261, the Greek-speaking Byzantines, under a new emperor, retook the city from the Latins. And by the way, this has led to an enormous amount of bad blood, yeah, even to this day, between Catholics and Orthodox. Uh, a friend of mine used to walk around the, uh, the neighborhood of Astoria in Queens, New York, and the little old Greek ladies used to give him dirty looks because he was an Italian. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, people have long memories uh, about this. Uh, but anyway, 
that severely weakened the Byzantine Empire, that Fourth Crusade. But from 1261 to 1453, the, the uh, Byzantine Empire was restored in its own right before the Turks took over. And images in the church were, 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 were made. And this is one of those beautiful images of the church. I, I, if I've got my chronology correct, it would have been from the late 13th century. Um, also, uh, this is sort of out of sequence, but I should bring it up. Um, there was a iconoclastic controversy in the history of the church. There was a Byzantine emperor in the year 717 who successfully fended off one of the early Arab uh, Mohammedan attempts to take Constantinople, only himself to fall victim to one of the tenets of Islam, which is you may not make graven images. His name was Leo III, this, uh, this emperor. And what he did was he whitewashed and destroyed all the wonderful Byzantine mosaics and Christian images in the city of Constantinople, which was a terrible loss, uh, of course, to history. And this controversy raged for over 100 years until in the 840s, I believe, Empress Irene restored the icons definitively at the Second Council of uh, Nicaea, I believe. Um, and of course, uh, so when we look at the beautiful cathedral today, uh, whatever beautiful images we see, they are post 843, because before that, in between, you know, in between 717 and 843, priceless images of Christ and Mary and the saints and angels were lost uh, because of these heretical emperors who should have known better. And actually, we have the correspondence of, uh, of a pope. I believe it's Pope Gregory the, uh, I want to say it's Pope Gregory the second or Gregory the third, who uh, told the emperor in no uncertain terms, he shouldn't be sticking his nose into theological business. He should be listening to the patriarch. And so the, the, the Roman popes were great defenders of images, of icons. Um, and uh, so I've given you a very long-winded uh, answer to your original question. There was uh, good times and certainly moments of tension between the Byzantine church in the East and the Latin church uh, in the West. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good thing to bring up is the iconoclasm because it's such a pivotal moment really in the history of the church because um, Nicaea II happens, Council of Nicaea number two, which is the seventh ecumenical council, happens in 787. Iconoclasm started at 717 and it keeps on raging, the, the Seventh Ecumenical Council does not resolve the situation, and it re gets renewed, and then the triumph of orthodoxy happens later in the 840s. Um, but during that same time period, that's when Charlemagne is crowned over in the West. And in fact, in the year 800, when he's crowned, there's actually no uh, Roman emperor in the East at the time. They're being ruled by uh, Regency, Queen Irene. And so there, this tension where whereas the east is folding under this heretical these heretical tyrants uh and just descending into chaos the west is rising politically and so this continues to build the tension between the east and the west even though there's still one church and the 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 schism sort of gradually develops um but i want to talk because we, we kind of noted all these these main points of the history up to 1453 
on the Christian side, but let's talk a little bit about Islam or Mohammedanism and what that is. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, we've covered this on two different shows, both the life of Muhammad and the Muhammadan conquests. Um, but two points I wanted to bring up here is the, so as you said, Justinian finishes Hagia Sophia in five, what was it? 537, I believe. I believe. Um, so six in the 630s is when a hundred years later, because at the time they were fighting against the Sasanian empire in the East, that was their em- enemy. But then suddenly out of nowhere, these Arabs come in into play and they conquest uh, much of that, what is today the Middle East. And then they press into Spain as like, like you talked about battle of tours, 732, Charles Martel presses them back. But there is a, in fact a Hadith, which is subs- uh, ascribed to Muhammad that he would take Constantinople or rather that the army of Medina would take mm-hmm. Constantinople. So the, the Arabs and the Mohammedans are thinking right away that they want to take Constantinople. It is the crown jewel of all of the Christian whole, the whole world. Like you said, the old Rome at this time, Rome and Italy is not what Constantinople is at all at this point. And so this is the target of the Mohammedans from the very beginning. And so there's various sieges of Constantinople that happen during this time in the 700s and on and on, as you talked about, there's there's so many different stories of miraculous interventions of the Theotokos to save the city. And uh, two points I wanted to raise about Mohammedanism as a religion or as a Christian heresy, and that is there is their their central creed is implicitly anti-Christ, and this is what the reason I use the term. Uh, the spirit of Antichrist, because this is one of the very first identifiers that was given to Mohammedanism by St. John of Damascus. He said, this is a forerunner to Antichrist. This is, he calls it the heresy of the Ishmaelites. And why this is uh, so important is because their central creed is the Shahada, which is the, their creed is that there is no God, but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's, that creed is Antichrist because it's implicitly an attack on the blessed Trinity. Because their, their doctrine states that there can be no association, what they call shirk, with God. And they, so they accuse us as, as, as being polytheists, as being not monotheists, because we worship one God and three persons. And then, so the Shahada, this creed, is, is a central assertion against the Trinity. And then their other phrase that, that you hear very often is Allahu Akbar. And that phrase means, it does not mean that God is great. It's Akbar is actually a superlative uh, adjective. It means God is greater. He is greater than, and and implicitly what they're saying is he is greater than the incarnation. This is the thing that is very offensive to Muslims, that we would claim that God became man. And that's why Allahu Akbar is is an assertion against the incarnation. It's It's an assertion that God cannot become man. He is greater than that. He's transcendent. He's bigger. He's, he's more than that. Um, in Sunni Islam, there are 99 names of God, and not one of them is anything that's human at all, like Father, God the Father, Father in heaven, who we speak of, because Allahu Akbar to them. That, that is the God is greater. He's more transcendent. 
and that is basically a diss. It's a it's a it's a assertion against Christianity, and so these these things need to be understood because in in our day we have uh, the Vatican II Council saying that they adore with us the one God, and so. But these phrases need to be understood in their context because in their context, they're actually ascribing uh, falsehood to Christianity and, and they're actually attacking Christianity. And so doctrinally you have that. And then we have obviously the Muslim conquest as a, as a religiously motivated political struggle of violence against Christianity. So those are two things I wanted to mention about Islam as a movement, as a heresy. Do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Mazza? Uh, yes, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, there's a few things I could just touch on, and you can let me know if you want me to proceed further with them. But, um, all right, let me start at the end. Uh, as you point out, the Second Vatican Council, uh, I believe it's in Nostra Aetate, uh, does give that quote, uh, Muslims and Christians together worship the one God. And um, this has been interpreted by... Uh, modernists within the church and semi-modernists as saying that we worship the same God, uh, which is certainly false. And Bishop Schneider has uh, spoken out about this in particular, most recently on, on Dr. Taylor Marshall's show. Um, but ironically, that quote that Christians and Muslims worship the one God is actually from one of the greatest popes in medieval history or history in general, and that's Pope St. Gregory VII of all people. And so I need to unpack that. So I don't want to leave people with the wrong impression. Uh, you might know, and some of the viewers might know, that in the year 1076, uh, Pope Gregory VII was involved in a struggle with the successors of Charlemagne, the Holy Roman emperors, as to does the, does the temporal king or emperor have the authority to invest bishops with their offices? Uh, and Gregory said no, because the church is higher than the state. Uh, so he's a very famous stalwart defender of the rights of the church. But on one occasion, he wrote a letter to the Muslim ruler in North Africa. And I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but when you read the exact quote from Pope Gregory VII or St. Gregory VII to this Muslim ruler, um, he, uh, he, he, he says that, Muslims and Christians worship differently the one God. Okay, so the council fathers at Vatican II should have got their quote straight, okay? Uh, when you phrase it the way he originally phrased it, it's actually accurate. Uh, he didn't say the same God, and he didn't say that we worship in the same way because we worship the Trinity. We worship the way God wants to be worshipped through the holy sacrifice of the Mass, you see. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. Uh, I could leave it at that, or you want me to go further with that? Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, that's the letter to Gregory Seventh, letter 21 to Anzir, king of Mauritania. Right. And so the uh, they... The also the Muslim. This is Nostra Aetate, paragraph three. Is where this comes from. Um, the there's also a place in Lumen Gentia, um, but it, it says that Muslims adore the one, adore one God. Um, in English, they add a the, 
which sort of indicates that it's the true God, sort of and it implies that, but there's no mm -hmm. thus in Latin. Um, yes, but and, and that's that's an interesting point. I, I'd like to get your take on that because I, I've I've tried to understand one God as um, because they do worship one God sort of numerically because they assert that there is one God and not multiple gods, right? which is a true assertion. So, I, I mean, I would say there is sort of, it's, I mean, it's, I, we want to understand Mohammedanism as a heresy and any heresy contains some truth, which then is twisted because, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I, there's a, a parish priest who wrote something on this. I could just read it. It's, it's very good. Uh, the quote here goes, Almighty God, who wishes that all should be saved and none lost, approves nothing in so much as that after loving him, one should love his fellow man, and that one should not do to others what one does not want done to oneself. Now, this is what I believe Gregory is saying in his letter to the, to the king in Tunisia or Mauritania. Uh, you and we owe this charity to ourselves, especially because we believe in and confess one God, admittedly in a different way, and daily praise and venerate him, the creator of the world, the creator of the world and ruler of this world. Now, the key Latin phrase is unum deum licit diverso modo, uh, which could be rendered literally as we believe and confess one God, although in a diverse manner. And this parish priest commenting on this says, to my thinking, in no way did Pope Gregory's letter imply that we worship the same God. Um, and then he references later on the Vatican II document on Nostra Aetate, paragraph number three, that you were just pointing out. So, um, so again, folks have to understand the original context in which the Pope was writing this letter. Uh, he was trying to get the Muslims in, in, in Africa and the Christians to act charitably towards one another. And he was not trying to claim that we worship the same God. So Vatican II, the, the, the Council Fathers clearly went beyond what the Pope was saying there. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there, There is a different mode. That's basically what a heresy is. It's worshiping God in a different mode other than the Orthodox mode, because Orthodox means correct worship or correct opinion. So, um, so long story short, you can watch the video, Mary Against the Mohammedans, which is an overview of all the different Mohammedan incursions. Um, and eventually it gets to a breaking point where the, the crusade, the crusades fail. Ultimately, they do not retake and, and keep Jerusalem is, is the main difference. Um, they retake Jerusalem, but they don't keep it. Not unlike the the Western Crusade in in Spain, which we discussed on uh, yesterday, um, that was a successful crusade. It was kept. Um, but in the East, it was not kept. Um, I don't know, you can give me your opinion. It seems to me that to be the the main cause of that is Christians fighting each other, not only the Greeks and the Latins, but the Latins among themselves as well. They failed to be united and prevent prevent present a united front which allowed the Mohammedans to retake Jerusalem and through a success of different 
caliphates, eventually the Turks take over, who proved to be the most vicious and uh, conquesting group of Mohammedans ever at that point. Um, so bring us to 1453. Um, you have you have what you what you noticed what you noted was the Council of Florence actually does reunite the churches jur juridically, sort of legally. The reunion has been affected, but there's a great deal of dis, um, contention in Constantinople among the Greeks. There's the Catholic Greeks that are pro-union, and there's the anti-union Greeks who are against the union. The Patriarch of Constantinople is Catholic, and the Emperor is Catholic. Um, and, and I think even the. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he was called Patriarch at that time of, of Moscow. He might actually also have been there. Isidore, uh, have, right. Yeah. Yeah, all of, the, all of the bishops at Florence from the East signed on to the Union, except for Mark of Ephesus, who is, is the champion of the Eastern Orthodox. They, many of them venerate him as the hero, basically, and we'll talk about the story. So, so what happens, uh, why, I, I've, I've seen that one of the main problems was that the Western brethren did not come to the aid at that point because the, the idea was that we unite, reunite the churches and then all the Western powers will then come to Constantinople to defend it. But that did not happen except minimally. Um, so tell us about 1453, what happened, and and introduce us to the villain, Mehmet II. Okay. Well, as you point out, um, uh, historians say that the, well, historians who try to be more cutthroat about this say that the Eastern Greeks agreed to reunion with the church because they had to, because they needed military assistance against the impending Turkish threat. Uh, the, the truth is, is more subtle and complicated than that. Uh, as you point out, uh, as you said, with the exception of Mark of Ephesus, all the churchmen in the, in the Greek Orthodox church agreed to reunion with the Catholic church. Um, in terms of Western aid to help them, one has to understand that at that time, the Hundred Years' War was raging between England and, and France. Uh, and uh, I mean, Joan of Arc was 1430, 1431, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, so in, in the years prior to that, the English were occupying large swathes of the modern country of France and they hated each other. And so it wasn't like the English or the French were in a position to offer military assistance to uh, Constantinople. The other thing to understand is that by the 1430s, by the 1440s, uh, there were really only pockets of Greek civilization left. Um, in other words, the Turks had already taken over um, everything with the exception of little isolated cities little isolated fortresses. Um, so um, if, if we were to represent it on a map, uh, you could have this you know, sea of red representing the, the Turkish Muslims. And then here and there, a few little you know, blue dots uh, representing the still Christian-held territory. Now, I'll step back a moment. The, the Crusades, when they were launched in the 11th century, were launched against the Seljuk Turks who had conquered um, the Holy Land from their brother Muslims. Uh, uh, and the Turks were sort of a more ferocious uh, militaristic force at that time. Um, eventually, a new dynasty uh, arose 
uh, among the Turks, uh, the Ottomans, the Ottoman Turks. And this happened in the 1300s. And there was even a brief moment when uh, the, the Mongols actually had the Turks on the ropes. And the Mongols might have finished off the Turks, but it didn't work out. So in the end, by the mid-15th century, uh, you do have the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, controlling large parts of Eastern Europe, Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, um, and large part, you know, virtually all of Turkey, and 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 it's it's a it's a bad situation. The in 1453, the uh, oh that's that's a great map. Yeah, that will help to uh, explain things. So uh, just just to just a note here. So the the purple right here. Sorry, here's the here's the map here. So as you can see, all these colors are Christian territories and only the purple is the Byzantine empire. So this, this area right here, this is Constantinople mm -hmm. and there's some over, over here, a little area in Greece, but exactly as you get the Ottoman empire is surrounding Greece at this point in 1450. Exactly. You can see it's like uh, they're caught in a vice. Um, in 1453, the, uh, or was it either 1452 or 1453, uh, the new leader of the Ottomans was a uh, 19 year old, uh, Sultan Mehmed uh, II, which uh, that's Turkish, but in English we would say Mohammed II, um, set his sights on taking Constantinople at all costs. And I believe it was beginning in April that his forces uh, surrounded the city of Constantinople and laid siege to the city. Uh, and now the city had stood for so many centuries Partly because, as you can see, if you look very hard on this map, uh, Constantinople is surrounded by water on three sides. Uh, and if uh, and the only way to attack it by land is from one side, and that and there were these big, what we call the Theodosian walls that protected the city, for, again, for literally a thousand years. Um, what, what he did was, what Mehmed II did was he attacked them by sea and he attacked them by land. And what he had at his disposal was uh, cannons. Now, this was the, uh, you know, this, the 1400s was the time of uh, gunpowder uh, first being used uh, for, in the West, for example, in the, to a certain extent in the Hundred Years' War, and certainly by the Ottomans. And, and if I'm not mistaken, it was actually a, a Greek or a, certainly a, a Western, Westerner who actually built the cannon that Mehmed used against Constantinople. We're talking about something tremendously huge, uh, it, unthinkable. And, and so ultimately the walls of Constantinople, which were built in the 400s, were not meant to withstand uh, cannon, you know, cannonball attacks and firearms in the 1400s. Um, and, uh, and, and again, the, the, the problem is that by that point, the, the Byzantines had such a small army compared to the army of uh, Sultan Mehmed, that on, I believe, May 29th uh, of the year 1453, uh, the Turks finally stormed uh, the city. And, and the last uh, Byzantine emperor, by the name of Constantine, by the way, I, I think he's Constantine the, the 26th. I could be mistaken. But anyway. The 11th. 11th, okay. <laughs> but... Uh, he uh, he died defending the city, and, and um, 
And now, he's a Catholic. Yeah, that's right. true. Yeah. Uh, and, and so at, at that time, Hagia Sophia was a Catholic cathedral, right? Uh, and, and, and Hagia Sophia is where the, uh, the civilians were, were held up uh, seeking refuge. You know, they barred the doors. Um, you know, it, it's really like something out of, uh, if, you've, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, the two towers, <laughs> it's, it's really like the, uh, the siege of Helm's Deep, if you can imagine it. Uh, and, and this is uh, a warning, uh, parental discretion advised for the following details. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I won't go into graphic detail, but unfortunately, when the, when the Turks, um, and to be fair, this was not just something that the, the Turks would do, it's something that the Mongols would do, and, it, uh, and sometimes Christians were not above doing the same thing, but maybe not in exactly the same way. But uh, not only did they kill people you know, inside the church and, and set the church, uh, steal things from the church, but apparently they also violated young boys on the altar. Uh, so it was just a horrible, a horrible scene. And um, Mehmed allowed this to go on for three days. Uh, and historians make a big deal out of the fact that he, he ordered all the violence to stop after three days. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> anyway. Um, and, and so Hagia Sophia was, was turned into a mosque and the, um, the great, uh, Christian images in the church were either plastered over or, or covered over. Uh, thank God they were not, you know, completely, uh, obliterated. And, and, um, really the Ottomans would, would, would go on to be a menace to Christian civilization uh, for at least uh, the next uh, 250 years uh, after this. Right. And as I'm sure you've covered on, on previous episodes, uh, they came to dominate the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and they came to, um, uh, they would steal people and, 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 and kill people uh, along the coast of, of Italy and France and Spain. Uh, there were Muslim pirates in North Africa who joined with the Ottomans in Constantinople and it was just a, it was a it was a bad scene. I mean, we're, we're talking about slavery in the millions uh, at this time uh, being promoted uh, by the Ottomans, and um, and again, if it wasn't for the uh, successful defense of Malta in uh, 1565, or and the uh, Battle of Lepanto uh, in October of 1571, if it wasn't for those two Christian victories. Uh, you and I would be reciting the Quran right now and talking about the meaning of Islam, not the meaning right. of, <laughs> of Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I want to point out two things about 1453, and that really is what I what I tried to bring out in the uh, the presentation I did on Muhammadan conquest was really Christian traders have really been the bane of the Islamic conquest. The the Christians, uh, a Christian trader, let the Muslims into Spain. Uh, like you said, there was, there's a commercial transaction, which allowed Mehmet to actually conquer the city. And so in the, after Florence, there is this bitter division between the Greeks who are Catholic and the Greeks who are anti-Catholic, anti-union. And it was, there's this famous phrase. And I remember when I was Eastern Orthodox, this was something that people said with pride to a certain extent. Um, and this is this is a quote from Lucas Notaras, and he was the commander in chief of the Byzantine Navy at the time. And he is attributed to have said, 
I would rather see a Turkish turban in the midst of Constantinople than a Latin mitre. And so that is the attitude represented by the anti-unionist Greeks, who in fact would would prefer to live under enemies of Christ than the Latins, who are their brethren. And that that type of animosity is really at the heart of the this is a so this right here, this is a Greek mosaic of Mehmet II investing the patriarch of Constantinople, Gennadios, who is an anti-unionist. So this so this is coming out of uh this this is an anti Antiochian Orthodox Christian here, Lena Nemme, and she actually discusses how we've forgotten the political force of Islam creating the great schism between East and West, basically, because as we pointed out, there there was a union affected. It was not it had been not been completed and not been accepted by all, obviously. There's a there's a division, but the Mohammedans take the city and they they drive out or kill all the Catholics as any conqueror would want to do that. It's sort of a no brainer, of course. And so what he does is he invests, he creates the patriarch of content, patriarchate of Constantinople. And this is uh, what Neme asserts is that Florence is a true Orthodox council because uh, a Mohammedan ruler cannot invalidate an ecumenical council. That's that's her assertion. She's saying that, well, we can't just accept this because he just drove out the Catholic patriarch and then he just installed his own patriarch. And how is that a valid thing in any church history for uh, you know, a Mohammedan who is worshiping the spirit of Antichrist, denying Jesus Christ? So the so as you pointed out, I this is where we get three different September 11ths. Uh, that we've discussed before. The, the siege of Malta is raised in 1565, September 11th, the siege of Vienna in 1683, and then the Battle of Zenta in 1697 all happens on September 11th. And this and, is... Uh, oh, go ahead. If I could just interject something real quick. Yeah. Um, you talked about how, um, as you say, they'd rather live under turbans than uh, live under mitres. That's sort of actually history repeating itself. The exact same thing happened at the beginning of the history of the spread of the Arabs in Egypt. Um, the Egyptian Christians, by and large, uh, did not accept the Council of Chalcedon uh, the way Rome and Constantinople did. Uh, what was at issue was whether or not Christ was uh, fully human and fully divine. And Pope Leo the Great, uh, the Council Fathers at Chalcedon, again in in, in uh, Asia Minor, uh, said that Peter has spoken through Leo, through Pope Leo. When when Pope Leo wrote a book saying that Jesus has a divine nature and he has a human nature, we call it the hypostatic union. That was in 451, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and for the next literally 200 years. Um, the many Christians in Syria and also especially in Egypt refused to accept that formulation. Uh, and we know them today as the Coptic church. And uh, again, the, the, so the historians tell us, uh, Egypt was taken by the Arabs basically without a fight because they thought that they would receive better treatment under Islam than they were receiving uh, from Constantinople, from the Byzantine emperor, they were not free to practice their uh, 
uh, monophysite uh, Christianity uh, as they wanted to. But um, I, if you ask the cops in Egypt now, do you think that was a good bargain? <laughs> I, I think they would uh, want to change that. Right. And, yeah, and that that's that's exactly right. That's uh, history repeating itself over and over and over. And that's that's part of what we're trying to do here at Meaning of Catholic. That's why we have Our Lady of Victory, because we need to understand our enemy, uh, both inside and outside the church. And we, we need to understand that, that that Christian unity is key. That's that's really been the crack in our in our citadel is is Christians hating each other and failing to recognize the common enemy. Uh, so that's a, that's a great point. Um, so I wanted to touch on bring us up to Hagia Sophia uh, as it uh, later is uh, cast into a museum later and, and kind of put this all in context. So we have Mohammedanism as a Christian heresy, which has codified religious conquest as a virtue in the idea of jihad. And we've covered this before in these other videos. But what's interesting is that this is something that comes out of, uh, this is a great book that covers this, Logos Rising, E. Michael Jones, where he discusses there is an interesting thing that happens in this time period. After the 1500s, you have all this, not only the Catholics are dividing each other, but the Protestants begin to ally with the Mohammedans too. And just a total chaos. And But remarkably, there is a shift in power and it comes unexpectedly, as, as Jones talks about philosophically, the Mohammedans were never able to develop science. They were never able to develop a scientific method as they were in the West. And the reason is because philosophically, they deny the use of reason. They deny the idea of secondary causality in nature as, as something you can study. Um, and this is not true for the Shiites. That's a little bit different story. But the majority of Sunnis have... This idea that every so many of them have the idea that every every truth must be contained in the Quran and the Hadith. Uh, you cannot discover any type of truth just by your reason alone. You can't just study the universe and understand uh, the secondary causality, meaning things have a natural law. There are natural laws, laws of gravity and that type of thing, where there's a cause and effect relationship with all these different elements in the world. And that type of thing is denied just on a very basic philosophical level by yeah. Mohammedans. Okay, oh, you want to add something? Yeah, I was going to say just in case people are listening to this and they think that this is just, you know, anti-Muslim propaganda from rad trad Catholics or something. Uh you can read I I'd, re I'd recommend the book by Robert Riley uh called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. And what he talks about is that, you know, around the time of Charlemagne, uh around the time of Empress Irene in the 800s uh, if you had to choose where to live, you, you might have chosen to live in Baghdad uh, rather than London. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy nowadays. <laughs> Baghdad, yeah, in the <laughs> <laughs> because in 800, the, uh, the the Vikings were burning, you know, London and Paris, and it was the Dark Ages. But in Baghdad, it was you know materially, culturally, it's a very splendid place. And the the caliph at that time, I believe his name was Al Mamun. Uh, he was a very enlightened guy in the sense that he wanted to he he promoted logical debates, rational uh, debates, uh, and this was the period when Christian Christian Syrian Christians were translating 
the works of Aristotle and, and Hippocrates and the great Greek thinkers into Arabic for their Muslim leaders, you know, their Muslim overlords. And, and, in, and Al-Mamun, to make a long story short, he had this uh, great palace of learning, this great library of learning, where he sponsored de even debates between Christians and Muslims. And so he was a man, you know, give him credit, uh, who respected reason. And, 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 and he represented a position which is known in the history of Islam as the Mutazilites. The Mutazilites uh, wanted to, um, they thought that the, the, the revelation must be understood in terms of reason. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, these people were overcome by the Asherites. And the Asherites were fundamentalist, you might say. You go only by the Quran. Reason is not an applicable category. And so ultimately, the Matazalites were persecuted. I, I imagine some of them escaped to Shiite lands where uh, there is that tradition in, in Shiism. But in Sunni Islam, which is the dominant uh, majority position of Islam, ever since the, the 900s, uh, you don't have... Uh, this belief, as you said, uh, that reason will get you anywhere. And I'll give you a quick example. So, for example, and I'm paraphrasing, there's a, a, a Muslim text by an Asherite, which goes something like this. Um, the fact that um, water freezes at you know 32 degrees Fahrenheit uh, is because Allah says so. <laughs> Not because water has a nature and that nature dictates that when the conditions are, are such and such that, you know, it freezes. Um, uh, I'll give you a moral example. Uh, and I'm just using uh, principles here. Uh, why, for let's, let's take something that we all detest, right? Uh, we would all agree is horrible. Uh, pedophilia, for example, right? We would all say that's an evil. But uh, do we say, let me, let me put it to you this way. Is pedophilia wrong because God says so, or does God say so because it's wrong? Now, your answer to that question will reveal whether you're a Catholic or a Muslim or a Calvinist, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, right. the answer is this. Uh, for an Asherite Muslim, the, the answer is, is it's, it's wrong because God says so, uh, not because there's such a thing as human nature, which dictates the rightness and wrongness of things, you see. And so uh, if, in an, if in a half hour from now, Allah decides that pedophilia is a good thing, guess what happens? It's a good thing. Why? Because right. he said so. <laughs> in, in Islam, it's all about the will of God. That's it. God is a sovereign. I mean, it, it's like radical uh, Calvinism here. God's sovereignty is everything, okay? He's not the logos. And Pope Benedict XVI got in some hot water when he gave his Regensburg address. Uh, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, he gave that Regensburg address, uh, was it September 12th of, of the year uh, 2006? <laughs> yeah. um, he, uh, he got into a lot of trouble because he quotes a Byzantine emperor who back in the 1300s was having something of a, of a dialogue or exchange with his, with his Muslim interlocutor in which uh, he talks about how logos must be the touchstone for your religion. You can't have true religion without true reason. Uh, and and anyway, uh, 
I'm just trying to underscore the point is that there's a reason why Isaac Newton developed Newtonian physics and Albert Einstein, de you know, devised Einsteinian physics. And that is that, uh, and again, if you're an American school child, what you learn when you go to school is that it was the Muslims who invented all these great things. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it, it's science and, 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 and all kind of wonderful things, all from the East. All right. Uh, and, and these, these, you know, the pitiful brutish, uh, white guys running around, you know, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, couldn't, couldn't get their, uh, map straight. But, uh, the, the simple explanation is this, it is true. Practical innovations were achieved by the Muslims in medicine and in navigation, et cetera, et cetera, mathematics. But again, if your religion does not allow you to uh, explore the nature of things, right? Uh, and so it's not the nature of water to freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It's just God wills it. Well, then tomorrow God could will that it freezes at 72 degrees Fahrenheit, right? You will never develop science qua science if that's your religion, you see? Yeah. So, but in Europe, the, the, the tradition of Catholicism was that science and and and, re, uh, and and religion or reason and faith go together you see and so yes um that just so that folks know there's a whole history intellectual history behind this this is not just you and me on a soapbox here <laughs> yeah um and th this is voluntarism nominalism which is basically the root of all philosophical evil um <laughs> and the quote from the satanist alistair crowley comes to mind where he says do what thou wilt shall be the only law. And this is, this is basically it. This or is Martin Luther, right? Sin and sin <laughs> boldly. Exactly. So it, this is, this is a, a thread of history that goes through all of history philosophically, which helps create all these, these destructive things. And um, I want to ask you this, this is kind of a side note. And why do you think it is that the scientific method did not develop in the East in in the, among the Orthodox Christians, it, I can I can point to certainly political reasons because they lacked resources or freedom as one major factor. But then you have the Russian Empire, obviously that that was quite uh, much more free hmm. for centuries during this time period. Uh, what do you ascribe to the the lack of a scientific revolution in the, in the, among the Eastern Orthodox? Hmm. That's an inter interesting question. I hadn't ever quite thought of it that way. Uh, well, you know, the, the very first thinkers to um, talk about how, you know, it would be a, a good contrast to display two different documents, one by the, the monks at the proto-universities and monastic schools at places like Chartres and uh, some of these other places in France, and compare what they had to say with, um, with these Asherite uh, Muslims, uh, who are again voluntarist, you know, to the core. Um, I wish I had the quotes in front of me, but um, there's actually a, a Catholic modernist who, uh, I mean, in the sense that uh, he highlighted the, the work of these schools. Uh, it's called the, I think it's called the love of God, uh, the love of learning, and the love of God, or something like that. Uh, maybe you've come across that title. It's by a guy named Dominic Chenu. Okay, now warning here, spoiler alert, the guy's a modernist, so be very careful, but tread carefully. But he talks about 
these, uh, you know, people don't realize this, but the university system began in Christian Europe, as we know it today. It began in Catholic Europe in the 1100s, University of Paris. And it started with what we call monastic schools or, or diocesan schools that eventually fl uh, flourished into universities. And they were staffed by monks. They were staffed by, by priests and theologians. And you read some of these theologians, and what they talk about is how um, one of them says, for example, that if we, if we deride reason, if we look down on reason, we would be like a man who's invited to a great banquet by a great lord and then despises it and doesn't show his gratitude for it. And so these, these early thinkers were trying to explain how uh, physical things have a nature and you can get to know why things work the way they do by studying their nature. And this is in keeping with the way God has made things. You know, there's, a, there's a line, I think, from the book of Sirach that says, God has made everything according to number and measure. Uh, you know where I'm going with that, right? So um, I, I wonder if there was something about that milieu which was different than what was going on in the Greek East or the Russian East. Um, I don't know if Caesaropapism has anything to, to, to do with, with the stunting, the growth of something like that. Uh, I know in the West, a lot of the early universities were founded by the Pope, by the papacy, which of course was independent from the secular rulers. I don't know if that plays a role, but certainly uh, there are many books and articles written, if you know where to find them, that talk about how science, the way we know it today, has its origins in these 12th century Catholic uh, theologians who were also proto-scientists uh, proto because of their respect for reason. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question that we can't really get into. Yeah, I definitely, I think Caesar of Papism, definitely because the emperor, both in Constantinople and in Moscow with the czar, de facto ruled the church and created and deposed bishops at will. And I think that that serves for a when when the tem when the temporal is above the spiritual i think that definitely stifles civilization and so there's an interesting sort of contrast with the eastern orthodox and that this there is sort of a a lack of civilization in some sense that we might uh get to but anyhow um uh, let's get back to the story um so 1683 and 1697 is when the military dominance of the Turks fades away. And I want to mention one other book here. This is um, another mainstream or another. This is the the one mainstream author. This is uh, History of Islamic Societies by Lapidus, uh, published by Cambridge. And they point out the same thing that we're talking about. The, the Western domination happened through science. And so that militarily, the Turks could just could not compete with the West because they were using the scientific method to develop more advanced weapons technology. And after 1683, they just begin to decline and decline. And to the point that the Ottoman Turks start to adopt European ways, they're bringing over the European mathematicians to teach them math. They're bringing, they're adopting Western art, uh, Western clothing. They, they just kind of realize that the Western civilization is dominant and they're sort of folding just in a very cultural way, civilizationally, if, if you will. Um, and this is what's causing the decline. Now, this brings up the idea of the caliphate. Now, the caliphate, the term caliphate means successor to the prophet, and it refers to a religious office that is analogous to the papacy. 
And what what that means is the caliphate is basically the warlord who does what Muhammad Muhammad did, and he leads the troops in jihad to conquer. So Muhammad conquered Arabia, and then you have the El Rashidun, the right so-called rightly guided caliphs, who then they retake Arabia because it rebelled after Muhammad died, and then they start the Islamic conquests. And then you have four successive caliphates. You have the rightly guided caliphs, you have the Umayyad dynasty and the Abbasid dynasty. And finally, in the fateful year 1517, the finding, founding of the Turkish Ottoman Turk dynasty of the caliphate. So the caliphate claims, and there's there's other minor caliphates as well that are- ISIS, that are, you know, in, in most yeah, recent- Right, yeah. The, so there's- um, there's sort of anti-popes, if you will, in terms of caliphates. So there's sort of anti-caliphates as well. But the dominant ones are these four. And so they represent the majority Sunni Muslims. And so the, the caliphate is an office. It's So it's like the papacy in the sense that it is a religious office. It's not just a political office. It's a religious office. And it's it, it sort of is the emperor of the Muslims who leads them into battle and, and does the, leads the jihad. And so the caliphate of the Turks is centered at Constantinople in Hagia Sophia as the great mosque where it is, they understand because their, their thinking is a very earthly kingdom um, that their, their dominance has been assured because they've conquered Constantinople. So, but with this decline that we're talking about more and more, there's this, this decline and it provokes these reaction movements among the Muslims. And they realize many, some of them realize that, the, the caliphate's becoming more and more westernized. And this provokes a movement called Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. It's not Saudi Arabia at the time, but it, it's a, a man named Wahhab and he has a very strict form of mm-hmm. Mohammedanism. He stones a woman personally. He has multiple, many wives. He is a hardcore Mohammedan. And he links up with the kingdom of Saud and later founds modern Saudi Arabia. And this is a reaction movement against the westernizing tendencies of the declining Ottoman Empire. And the British Empire at the time find out that there's this reaction movement and they think, wow, we could fund this movement. We could give them money and support in order to go against our enemies, the Ottoman Empire. And so this, again, Christian betrayal happens again, where the growth of this continues up to World War I which is where the Ottoman Empire finally is destroyed. And it, then the Western powers take over um, the Middle East and they divide up the Ottoman Empire as they see fit. And then the kingdom of Saudi Arabia sort of wins its independence with, with the support that it's had. And so this, is, this comes to the point where the caliphate is actually abolished and the Hagia Sophia is turned into a museum. And this is part of a westernizing, secularizing western backed effort to secularize the muhammadan world and so this is where you have the figure of ataturk who is the uh turkish leader who secularizes turkey and abolishes the caliphate so this then provokes further reactions and this is the founding of the muslim brotherhood and and so the goal of many of these muslim groups is to refound the caliphate to reestablish this um and this is something that I wanted to bring up this quote from Hilaire Belloc. So in this time period after World War I is when Belloc noticed he discusses the dominance of Western powers in the 
the East. And he talks about how the Western powers really um, have come back to the Middle East, but they've come back not as religious conquerors, but merely political and economic. And he talks about, I, you know, I'm not going to read this whole quote because we're running short on time, but this is from the Crusades. And this is in 1937. And he basically predicts in 1937 that Islam will rise again because they have the the religion. They have the 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 zeal for their religion, whereas we've lost the zeal for, for religion. And so our dominance is merely political and economic, which is not as powerful as religious. And so he, he basically predicts in 1937 that Islam will rise again mm. and that it will eventually uh, take over. Um, and so th- what we're seeing in the past few decades is the return of Islam as a political force in the world. And this is this is what brings us back to finally what what began this, which is that uh, two weeks ago, Hagia Sophia was turned back into a mosque. So this is part of an effort to re-Islamicize and reconquest. So, um, Dr. Maza, you had a few things to add with uh, Turkey, and anything you want to add on that? Sure. Summarization. Well, <laughs> the uh, you know the Prime Minister of Turkey. Um, uh, he 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 sort of has a very anti-Catholic uh, slant to him. Um, back when, in September of 2006, when Pope Benedict gave his Regensburg address, um, the deputy leader of Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan's party, a guy by the name of Salih Kapusus, told state media, quote, he, meaning Pope Benedict, has a dark mentality, the darkness of the Middle Ages. He has not benefited from the spirit of reform in the Christian world. Uh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I think you know people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? I mean, Erdogan, by conquering Constantinople, that's sort of a medieval, of Hagia Sophia, that's kind of a medieval thing to do, isn't it? Uh, there was video footage. I don't know if you have access to it, but uh, that when they had the ceremony, the official ceremony, right, opening up Hagia Sophia as a, an official mosque again, um, the the imam or the, the Muslim cleric is is got a nice sword in his hand, uh, waving the sword around, uh, and uh, you know that's very subtle. <laughs> yeah, let, let me. Um... Let me see if I can pull that up. Um, the let's see, uh, hold Ottoman sword during first. Okay, here we go. So add this in here. So yeah. the I want to add this quote also from Erdogan. Here's uh, give me a second here. And then also, uh, it's been reported in the Greek city times that a flag of an Islamic extremist organization was inside Hagia Sophia. It was filmed and published on social media. Um, It was either the Afghan Taliban flag or uh, it was, um, what does the article say? Others have pointed out that the flag is, in fact, not the, of the Taliban, but rather the Liwa al 
Mujahideen Wal Ansar that operate in Syria and were once affiliated with ISIS, but now with Al Qaeda. And the article says whether the flag belongs to the Taliban or the Liwa, uh, undoubtedly a terrorist flag was displayed in Hagia Sophia. Yeah. So and and so here's a a quote from Erdogan. So he's a pious Muslim, and any pious Muslim wants to see the return of the caliphate. Um, this is kind of I mean this is what Catholics. I mean we just got to understand the Catholics. We would want to see the return of Hagia Sophia, the return of Jerusalem as a Christian civilization or, or various things that have, I mean, the return of the old mass. I mean, various things. We want to see these things. And any pious Muslim wants to see the return of the caliphate. Um, they want to see the return of the glory of their, you know, their glory days. So here's, here's Erdogan from February 2018. He says, quote, so this is two years ago. Um, he says, quote, those who think that we have erased from our hearts the lands from which we withdrew in tears a hundred years ago are wrong. We say at every opportunity we have that Syria, Iraq, and other places in the geography in our hearts are no different from our homeland. We are struggling so that a foreign flag will not be waved anywhere where Adham, the Islamic call to prayer, is recited. The things we have done so far pale in comparison to the even greater attempts and attacks we are planning for in the coming days, inshallah, which means God willing. End quote. So the this imam here that you see pictured had the sword as he preached the sermon, which bore the Quranic verse, which says, quote, indeed, we have given you a clear conquest. End quote. So I'm just going to read. This is from an article. This is from Jihad Watch, Robert Spencer. He wrote this and then quoted from this article. The article is named Hagia Sophia Istanbul Revels in Reconquest During First Friday Pair, written by Yusuf Selman Inkang from the Middle East Eye. Um, so around 10 a.m., this is quoting from the article, around 10 a.m., the crowd in Uskudar, a historic and conservative neighborhood in Istanbul's Asian side, were already thronging. Amongst the people carrying Turkish flags and Islamic banners and chanting slogans was a man in his 50s looking around with bewildered eyes. He had come from France, where he had been living since he was 15. Quote, as a Turk, it was impossible for me to miss this historic moment, so I came all the way by driving, end quote, he told Middle East Eye. The man who concealed his name due to allegiance to allegations of the French government, etc., uh, etc., et was not an exception. The ferry from Uskudar, uh, was more crowded than ever. Those in disembarking joined a great mass movement towards Hagia Sophia, the Akanok historic building that was now controversial being reconverted to a mosque. Among the masses were thousands of people who had come from Anatolia's remote areas, as well as from European countries such as Germany, France, Austria, that have considerable Turkish populations. And th this is uh, one, one, one quote, Oh my Lord, praise be to you. This is like Hajj. End quote. So a man shouting out in the crowd, Hajj's the Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, they they're shouting out Allahu Akbar, um, which again is an attack on the on, on the incarnation. And so this was a celebration, and Erdogan himself read uh, prayers at the ceremony. And so this was a, a this was a big rally for Mohammedans and a celebration of a reconquest of a Christian church and where the imam held a sword which talked about reconquest. <laughs> like you said, very subtle. 
Yeah, it, it, uh, I hope that people will begin to wake up, Catholics in particular, and pray uh, that we can, that, you know, we have to be aware of who's after us here. I mean, ultimately, we're dealing with principalities and powers, even beyond the human element here. <clears throat> I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, churches in America are being firebombed and, and in France at the same time as the Muslims are retaking Hagia Sophia. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, the dark Lord is behind all of this, Satan. And uh, he's, having his, he's having his moment right now, uh, but the, uh, the woman will crush his head uh, and we are the rest of her seed. And so we need to be wearing the brown scapular. We need to be praying the rosary every day. Uh, we need to be in a state of grace and we need to be mobilizing a spiritual uh, army spiritually uh, to counter uh, what's behind all of this on the, on the ultimate level of things. Yeah, that, that's a great closing remark of this whole saga. Uh, I think I think of the verse, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that I think that very perfectly explains the difference between the Mohammedans and, and the Catholics in throughout history and what we need to bring to today because our fathers faced this menace down and its armies. And they trusted in God and they prayed to him and he delivered them. And that's always been the story throughout Israel. Read the Bible. That's just what God does. He, he delights in overcoming the stronger with the weaker. Um, so that, that's a great way to end this, Dr. Maza. Um, tell us about what you're doing. I've got, a, I've got a link in the show notes. So please go and go to Dr. Maza's GoFundMe and support his work. And there's another exciting opportunity coming very soon. So Dr. Mazza, tell us about that. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm trying to remedy my unemployed situation. <laughs> and so what I'm trying to organize for the fall, hopefully, is I'm going to be offering live online courses in uh, church history and in world history. And so if this is something that uh, you, you or someone you know would be interested in, uh, please go to my website, edmundmazza.com. And uh, in the, uh, you'll see a post where I uh, post this announcement. Uh, in the comments section, just please indicate that this is something that you or somebody you know would be interested in. If I can get, you know, 200 people, let's say, that are interested, I think we can make a go of this. Uh, the course would probably be, each course would probably be $300, something around that, uh, for about 12, 14 weeks. And um, I, I think, it, you know, I, I, been teaching college for 16 years, and uh, I think I have something to offer folks that uh, they could they could get at a uh, that would benefit them not only you know education wise but spiritual wise. Yeah, and, and you would get the uncensored version where Dr. Maza can actually just freely speak the truth. He doesn't have to watch for the you know the the dean of students or whatever about. Uh, making sure that he keeps within the Marxist lines. So you get the full uncensored history with Dr. Maza. So I hope that I could persuade you to come on the show more often so that sure. we can talk history and promote your, your, uh, college courses. Thank so, you. uh, yeah, definitely do yourself a favor and sign up for Dr. Maza, uh, so that you can support his good work so he can share his knowledge with you and you can 
you can also be cured of your own Marxist education that you received from K through 12 and in college. So uh, cure, cure yourself of your Marxism. That's the, the ad for uh, Dr. Mark. Be become a, become a Mazakayan. <laughs> Mazakayan. There we go. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so as we always do, we're going to close with prayer and we'll, we'll offer up in confidence this our father that his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because we trust in God that that uh, the God will reign and he will overcome the all the machinations of Satan, whether within the church or without. And we also pray for the conversion of Mohammedans. Many Mohammedans have been converted through dreams and visions, and many of them also say that they converted because of the love and charity of Christians to them. And this is something that is most baffling to them because our Lord Jesus Christ says to love our enemies. And so this is something that we can give to them, especially when we preach the gospel to them and try to reason with them to be baptized. And so we pray for them, the conversion of Mohammedans, and, and we want to all show them the love and charity of Jesus Christ in order that they may be saved. So um, let me get my Ponto Crator. Can you talk about the Ponto Crator icon? Can you say anything about that? Because that's what I always use, and I've never really discussed that, but you mentioned yes. it in... This image is from the monastery of St. Catherine's in Egypt. Uh, when the bad emperors of Constantinople were destroying icons in Constantinople. Fortunately, the monks at St. Catherine's Monastery, which was established by Justinian in the 500s, uh, they were out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, they were under Mount Sinai. That's where it's located, it's, which uh, is kind of ironic given that, uh, well, one of the monks there in a documentary said it's ironic that the greatest, most beautiful icons in all the world are here, uh, or mo mo a lot of them. And it's it's very spot where God said, you shall not make a graven image. But of course, it's the same God who also said to construct the Ark of the Covenant, and the same God who said to make a brazen serpent and have all the people look at it. So uh, we understand that commandment a little differently than our Jewish and Muslim uh, brothers and sisters. But nevertheless, what I'd like to point out about this beautiful image here is that uh, it's likely from the sixth century, and you can find it today um, at St. Catherine's Monastery uh, in the deserts of Sinai. And also I would like to point out that one of the reasons that they have survived in a, you know, a Muslim dominated uh, country all these centuries is that they have in their archives, or they claim to have an actual document from the prophet himself that said, you have to tolerate these people, leave these people alone. And so that's been good <laughs> uh, all these centuries and that sort of uh, allowed them to exist. Um, and it's um, the other thing I'll mention about this particular image of Christ is that it has been speculated that this image is based off of the Shroud of Turin, which uh, you can make a good argument that the Shroud of Turin uh, was originally held in Constantinople and uh, was robbed from Constantinople when the French knights took it in the Fourth Crusade of 1204. Uh, and before that, it was in Edessa in Turkey. And, and that if you compare the, the, the image of the face of Jesus on the Shroud of Turin with this particular image uh, from St. Catherine's, there are uh, dozens of multiple facial recognition points. Uh, 
so that if, uh, if this was a police matter, uh, you could identify the two people as the same, as the same person. Um, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful icon, and it's one of the earliest icons to show Christ um, with a beard uh, the way we would recognize him today uh, in the first centuries of Christianity. Uh, maybe maybe I should also offer an art history course while I'm at it this fall. But if you if you study the history of Christian art, the earliest images that we have of Christ, uh, he looks like uh, a Roman god or a Roman senator or a young man. Uh, and it's not until the uh, the five hundreds or the six hundreds that we really begin to get these traditional images of Christ that we would recognize. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating point. I didn't know that connection with the Shroud of Turin. I, I've actually had the blessing to visit St. Catherine's Monastery, wow. and uh, wow. they've, they've got the the burning bush there, what, what, what they say is the burning bush, and wow. um, it's it's an uh, incredible place. And it, yeah, it really is in the middle of nowhere. You could drive for hours <laughs> just in, wow. through barren desert to find this place. Um, so so yes, the, the Sinai Pantocrator uh, and so Pantocrator means all powerful. It, so that that's what is put on the and the, the height of the dome in Orthodox churches and Eastern churches, like like we saw in Hagia Sophia. So uh, let's pray for those intentions and let's offer this up and trust always in God's mercy for deliverance. In name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Father, the Son, the Son, Holy, Spirit. Holy Spirit. Amen.